you got some good cameras, dude. Oh, thank you. Here. Very crisp. Um, sure. Yeah, thanks. Is this a Havanese? Or? Yeah, oh. that is a Havanese. Yeah, How would you know? Well, we, we know? He's a curious know. fella. He knows these folks, things. A curious fella. A lot of folks don't get that on Well, that's because my, my wife Thank is on the board you. of directors of the animal, a, an, Aspen Animal Shelter. No way. So she's a real, she's had every, every beast in the book. Did you get some good skiing in this season? Uh, I only do cross country now. Cross country now. Yeah. Yeah. And I, but I did, yeah. Actually, it's still snowing. I know, but today was closing day, wasn't it? it it's still going. No, it's still going on. It's still going on. It's going to go to June. Oh my They got God. 18 inches of snow two days ago, and and it, it's still snowing. Holy cow! It's crazy. It look, people sent me pictures. It looks exactly like midwinter. Like midwinter. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> I saw that you brought Guthrie out there for, for yeah. a couple for what a couple days or. Uh, we did well. It was actually makeup shows from COVID. Oh, we had tried to book. We had uh, we had three shows. We had Vale, Telluride, and Aspen. Yeah, booked in 2020, 21, and uh, they got canceled. Then in two early tw- 22, it got canceled again. So this was the third times a charm tour. We called it. Oh my god! And so we went back out and rebooked everything and di- and got them all in, all three in. How do you feel about Vale? Because most Aspenites. Aren't you know? Yeah, is, isn't there a rivalry, or, or is that like, not true? It's like the Republican ski resort. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. It's Vale's Vale's Vale. The mountain itself is amazing, but you know, it's it's so close to Denver. It gets a huge week. You, are you skier? Yeah, big skier. Oh, okay. So you yeah, know. yeah, yeah. It, it, a lot of uh, a lot of people come up from Denver um, for the weekend because it's accessible. It's so close. Yeah. It's th- not that extra two hours or hour and forty five minutes to Aspen. You know, so um, yeah, it just gets too crowded. But the if you ever skied Vale, it's an amazing mountain. Yeah. The town is, you know, it's an ersatz Australian village. <laughs> oh, my God. I got tagged by the dog. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, th- I thought you jumped because of, of the big word I used. <laughs> I just, the dog just jumped into my lap. <laughs> I said I said ersatz, and you jumped. And I thought, wow, do you have, like, an allergy to vocabulary? I was vocabulary? like, what is touching me? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> that was good. The, um, the thing about <laughs> I need to contain myself I'm now. Gonna, I'm going to let everybody know. Zach has an allergy to to, uh, to large vocabulary. To large. large vocabulary. Or small, small unusual vocabulary. And and small dogs, too. Yes, yes, the thing yes. about Aspen, though, is once you're in that town, you've got the town, and then you have the you're four there. mountains. You're there. Oh, yeah. The skiing's there's, insane. There's nothing like it. I've been to Vail, like, one time, and then I yeah. never I never. Yeah, no, Aspen back. is Aspen. Is nope. I mean, it's world-class. It's, you know, it's one of those places where you can have a world-class, like, lifestyle experience you know whether that's eating shopping culture whatever it is you want and then you have this world class you know alpine experience on four different mountains and backcountry and everything in between yeah it's it's pretty special i have to say do people bother you when you walk around the town or they kind of you know no i i've been there you know i i've been there for over close to 40 years you've been there before it even oh yeah i went there in 1968 yeah which is crazy. On a college, a college trip. Ski trip. College That's ski right. trip. Yeah. You saw an ad in a paper that said, what, like 120 bucks, That's flights, right. I everything. You've done your research. Good, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, absolutely. Good, I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah. Already, I'm already impressed. Yeah, and I, I, was, so I was at Temple University, and I was a skier back east, you know, skiing the little, you know, blue ice uh, ski resorts. Yeah, what mountains? It's still oh, there? Oh, I used to go to Spring Mount in Pennsylvania when I was in high school with a rope toe, and then I went up to Vermont, I went to Massachusetts to, you know... Uh, Brody and, uh, you know, all those ones, Camelback, uh, you know, Elk Mountain in yeah. Pennsylvania. So I did them all. Uh, but then, you know, once you go out west, you get spoiled very quickly. Did you ever take ski lessons or were you basically self-taught? Uh, I was pretty much self-taught. And then I became a Telemark skier in the in the 90s. And then I was I skied Telemark from all, all through the 90s into the early 2000s. I've never done cross-country skiing. It doesn't seem... There, there's got to be less adrenaline, right? No, or, it, or it's no. fun. There's no, adre- there's there's no, no adrenaline. adrenaline. There's just a lot of aerobic. Uh, it's just aerobic weakness. work. It is work, but but it's beautiful work. You know, okay. it really is. It's 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 the you know you work your shoulders, your arms, your lungs, your legs. It, it's it's really an amazing workout. I mean, you do 40 minutes of cross country skiing, you're done. Yeah. And you're not going to get whacked by a snowboarder or another skier. That's, you're not going to hit a tree. That's going to be the headline. John calls out snowboarders on no, a Zach King show. No, don't do that either. 
But the thing is, you know, if you if you hit a tree while cross country skiing, you're fine. It's your fault. It's your fault. That's <laughs> that's the big point. It's your fault. It's your fault. You've got no one to blame. Wait, so you yeah. were just in Florida for the yeah. premiere of a movie? Yeah. That you wrote a, yeah. a couple songs for. What was the movie? This was a, also a pandemic uh, project. Um, it was called. It's called Gringa. It just uh, was released yesterday. The tw- well, twenty first, and um, it is streaming now on, on many platforms: Comcast, Apple Music, and all, all sorts of things. It's a great, great little movie. It was done by a, a, the director is a friend of mine, and during the pandemic, uh, you know, he sh- he finished it in nineteen, and he was you know he's getting ready for post production, and, and the pandemic kind of shut everything down. He called me and asked me if um, if I wanted to write try a, write a song for the movie. Um, and of course, I was home and I had some time, so I did. Um, and, and what did he then, give you? Did he give you like a prompt or anything? Or uh, he, just... he gave me, the, yeah, he gave me a, a treatment. Basically, yeah. told me he didn't send me the, the entire script, but he, you know, he basically told me what it was about, and I, I went for it. Um, and then he liked the song, and he said, "Hey, you want to do some more? I need music." I said, "I'll do as much as you want." And I began to churn out these songs, uh, doing a lot of uh, some collaborations, some co-writes, and also uh, collaborations performing with uh, various people. So, um, as it turned out, I ended up uh, doing. Well, I, I wrote five songs. One of them didn't quite make it, so I ended up with four songs uh, in the movie. And then there's one more song in the in the movie that is, was done by uh, Jesse McCartney from um, Maroon 5. Oh, yeah. And he has one. And then the, the score was done by another guy named Tim Williams, who's amazing. Uh, but we all kind of collaborated together, and um, I got to uh, do a duet with a great Mexican uh, female named Jimena Sariana, who's a huge star in Mexico. And she, uh, I, I wrote a song in English, and she rewrote the verses in Spanish, and then we sang it together in Spanish, and I had to learn it. I, I took high school Spanish, so I was, you know, part of the way there. But, um, you know, so I learned it, and uh, we did it in Spanish, which was a unique thing for me. Um, and then I had another gal named Daphne Willis uh, write a song that uh, me and my niece wrote. No together. way. And um, I needed a, a great female singer. And Daphne uh, used to live here in Nashville. She lives in L.A. now. She's amazing. So she sang that one. And then I sang uh, two of them, two other ones. Is your niece a musician? Uh, yeah, she's a performer here in town. No way. Yeah. So uh, Anna Lee, her name is. And what does she call you up constantly and say? No, no. She's actually pretty respectful. She, I help her out. Why? I, if I was her, I'd be calling you up 24-7. <laughs> Why be respectful? I helped her. I helped her in the beginning. I helped her get going, making her initial demos. I think she just wants to carve it out herself. You yeah. Know? Uh, but I've helped her, you know, here and there. And uh, she came up with a great song idea, and I finished the song, and then... Um, and uh, I actually asked her, I said, do you want to sing it in the movie? And she didn't feel comfortable singing it. So I got Daphne to do it. Um, and then, uh, then there was a really cool song. Um, my wife found this guy on Instagram named Servon Campbell from South Carolina who had this, like, I would call it a song idea. Uh, I didn't think it was complete. But I really liked what he was doing. And I got a hold of him. I DM'd him and I said, hey, you want to... F- you want to take this song to another level? And this was actually before the movie. Um, and he went, yeah, let's let's do it. So he and I collaborated via Zoom, and then he came to Nashville, and we completely fleshed this thing this out. This was just a totally random guy that your wife Totally had? random guy, yeah. And she thought, hey, this guy she, has a she good song. Or- and I heard it, and I liked it, too. I, I liked where it was coming from, but I didn't really feel like it was a complete song. It was just a great idea. And um, and then we finished it. And he, okay, you're gonna love this story. This is really crazy, and this shows you how this whole project kind of went. Um, while I was writing the other songs for Gringa movie, um, I had completed this other song with uh, Servan Campbell, and he's kind of a rapper. He's he sings, but he's most kind of a yeah. rapper. And um, so I had it, and I didn't know what to do with it. And then just randomly, I said to the director, I said, you know. I said, I've got this song. I said, I don't think it's right for the movie. There was no Latin American content. It wasn't skewed in that direction musically. I said, I think it's a really cool song. I said, but I don't know. I said, you know what? He goes, send it to me. Let me hear it. I sent it to him. And he he said, okay. He said, you're not going to believe this. He goes, well, I'm going to send you a clip from the movie because I had not seen anything. So in the in the clip, the young gal... She's living with her mother, who's a real estate agent in Southern California. Her mother dies in a car accident, and she wakes up by herself in their condo, you know, basically alone. She's wearing a shirt 
that says, Do Not Disturb. The song is called Do Not Disturb. Oh, my God. Yes. I know. It's, it's almost too, oh my God. too incredible to be real, but it's true, totally true. And the song that, that Servan came up with was called DND, Do Not Disturb. And, I, and he said, did you know about this? I said, how could I have known? I said, you didn't even send me the script. And he said, this is too much. He goes, I love this song. He goes, we're using it. And so it's the, it's the opening song in the movie. So, uh, yeah. So it was meant to be in, in a sense, yeah. When you're DMing this guy, is this sort of a random guy in the world who's a songwriter? He's a guy who's posting stuff on it. On, on How do you know these people aren't crazy? Or, I mean, is, isn't... I sensed he was okay. He you was, sensed he was okay? He was real respectful, and he, he was young, and um, he got excited. And I said, this is great. We can do something really cool with this. So Okay, so we have to check this movie out. Yeah, it's is, it's good. Is it crazy that, you know... You're obviously the Philly guy, but you were born in New York, and pretty much from the start of your professional career at Atlantic, it's all happening in New York. Daryl and I have never recorded in Philadelphia. You've never recorded in Philly ever. So was that a decision to push the Philly brand forward? Like, was that a benefit to make you guys stand out? It was kind of a decision, um, but there were circumstances involved. One is that we had a a, a very, we had a very kind of. really not a good relationship with a guy in Philadelphia who we were working with who wasn't helping our career. In fact, he was hindering it. Um, it took us a while to realize what was happening. And then we uh, we ran into uh, Tommy Mottola in, uh, in New York City when he was working at Chapel Music as a song plugger. Um, and he liked us because we had, uh, we, our, our publishing was signed to Chapel Music. And so we did kind of a showcase for them to kind of show off our new songs. And he said, well, what's your deal? I like, I like what you guys are doing. And we said, well, we don't, we don't know what our deal is. Our deal is we, we're in, we're in a bad, you know, we're in, we're in a bad business relationship in Philadelphia and we don't want to be there. And he said, I'll take care of it. And that was kind of how that started. And he was 20 years old, right? Or 21? He was the how- same age as my age. He was 22. So what? What did he have a demure to him that he was said, just confident or like? Yeah, he was. A, he was a New York, uh, you know, Italian New York. He wore. He he looked good in a suit, you know. Yeah. And uh, he he was very uh, aggressive, and uh, he said, "I've never managed anybody, but he's. I'm going to take care of this." That's basically. And he went it. But were there conversations throughout your career to say, hey, let's brand these guys as the Philly guys because it stands no, out a little no, different? No, it's just not, once you're, it's, <laughs> it's like Rocky. Once you're from Philly, you're always you're from You're always Philly. from Philly. You can never, never leave. What is a Philly? You can, you can climb the steps of the art museum, and but you can never leave. You can never leave. That's right. Yeah, yeah. What's a Philly chord progression? I've heard you say, like, some of your songs have a Philly chord progression. What oh, is that? Oh, it's, it's more than that. It, it has to do with... You know, first of all, Philadelphia R&B is pretty sophisticated when it comes to the harmonic, you know, c- construct of it. Um, has to do with using a lot of major seventh chords. Has to do with lo- using like major, like minor, minor nines. Chords that are a little bit more jazzy, I would say, than your average pop kind of a thing. A lot of it comes from, uh, you know, a lot of it came from... Well, see, Daryl and I were working at the Schubert Theater building. Um, we were songwriters for this guy. And uh, above us, a few floors above us, Gamble and Huff had just begun their their production career. They were always around Philadelphia. Kenny Gamble uh, had a band called Kenny Gamble and the Romeos. Leon Huff was a piano player. Um, but then they really uh, solidified as a production team. And they took an office a few floors above us. So we were friends. And we would see them and, you know, all that sort of thing. And at the really, at a very cr- critical point, it was like, if we were going to extend our, if our career was going to, you know, evolve, it was either go upstairs and work work with Gamble and Huff or do something else. Yeah. And we we didn't want to be part of, even though we I love them and they're the, some of the greatest of all time, we felt that we could carve our own niche, you know, our own pet career path. And the only way to do that was to leave Philadelphia. And then, so then you have this audition at Atlantic. And well, it's way more complicated than that. It's way more complicated than that. But did you ever interact with Amit? It's way more complicated. It's way more complicated than that. We auditioned all over New York City and, and did showcases for every record company. And as soon as we would finish playing on that evening, they would come up and go crazy. 
you guys are the best. Wow, I've never heard anything that sounds like this. You guys are unique. And then nothing. Then the next day, we'd ask our the guy we were working with, what happened? They passed. It was always, they passed. And we're like, what do you mean they passed? They seemed, they said they liked us. No, no, they don't, they, you're not right. And we're like, something's wrong. So Daryl and I scrounged money together, and we uh, took a flight to L.A. We went to L.A. because we didn't know anywhere else to go. And we had never, neither of us had ever been to L.A. And we also didn't realize that you needed a car. You needed a car to get around. <laughs> so we checked into the um, to the uh, hotel on Santa Monica Boulevard, and um, all we could do was walk from that hotel to the to the uh, to the International House of Pancakes and Barney's Beanery, because that was the distance. It was a mile, about a mile. We could walk back and forth. Um, but there was a guy from Chapel Music, who because of our connection with Chapel. He met us at the airport, let us actually sleep on his couch the first night we got there. And then he began taking us around, and he took us to Earl McGrath's house. And Earl McGrath, you know anything about Earl? Not really, no. Earl was very good friends with Ahmed Erdogan. Okay. And because, and he was a, Earl was a, he just passed away recently. There's actually a, a record out uh, with his, the things that he's done. He was basically an art dealer, a, a bon vivant, a raconteur, um, and a very close friend of Ahmed Erdogan. But how'd you get in the room with him? The guy from Chapel Music knew him. And set, and set it up. And set it up. So we went to Earl's house. He had a little bungalow uh, right off Santa Monica Boulevard, right in, behind the Troubadour. Um, and um, we went in, and he had all this amazing artwork, and he was very, you know, he was very, like, intellectual. And um, so we sat in his garden, and we played him some songs. And, he's, and he started laughing. That's the thing I remember the most about it. He actually started laughing, and we were like thinking, "Okay, this is really weird." Because he—it was a very eclectic, you know, house. It was very, you know, it was out there, and um, and he said, "Are you guys for real?" And we said, "What does that mean?" Well, that's what we said. We said, "Yeah, we're for real." This is these are. He goes, "We." He goes, well, "What are you doing playing songs in my house?" He <laughs> goes, "I'm calling Atlantic Records right now." He goes, "You're going to be on Atlantic Records." And we said, okay. But this, what, what you were playing <laughs> had to be much more folksy sounding. Oh, it was totally, it's totally artsy, folksy. It sounded like folksy. the first record, probably. It was Hall Oats. Oats. Hall Oats. Sound yes. like Hall Oats. It was Hall Oats. Yeah. It was the genesis of the music on Hall Oats. That's right. So then, and then he calls Ahmed, and then what, you fly to New York right after? Yeah. He called, he called Atlantic, and he said, I'm sending these two guys. You're going to listen to them. So we, then with Tommy Mottola, we went to Atlantic Records, and we went into a little studio, um, and I remember Daryl was not feeling well. The piano was kind of out of tune. Um, and uh, into the room came Mark Meyerson, who was the head of the company at the time. Uh, Jerry Greenberg, another one of the principals. And Arif Martin. And Arif Martin. Yeah. And we played the songs. And at the end, same, we did our dog and pony show, basically. Did you keep Tommy around because you felt like, hey, we're no, supposed no, he, to have a manager? He, he kind of set it up. He set it up. He kind of set it up. And... and um, and then at the end of the interview, Arif Martin just said, he goes, he goes, I love them. I will produce them. And that was it. Boom. And right. he didn't fool around like everyone else was saying, oh, we love you, but we'll pass. No, he, he he boom, stood, you were in. He stood up, I will produce them. Yeah. If Arif Martin said he was going to produce you, that was all that mattered. He was the, Arif was the, one of the greatest producers of all time. You know? Yeah. And uh, he, you know, he, he held so much uh, sway and his, his uh, musical opinion was so, you know, uh, appreciated and revered that, you know, he just... Could you have made those early, like that first record without him? Did you guys we, have the? We could have, but it wouldn't have been the same record. Yeah, you know he, he the thing about Arif, which made him so amazing, was that he he was a pure mus musician. He he didn't care about genres and styles. He he was trained classically. He loved American jazz. Um, he loved folk music. He loved blues. Uh, but but he had all the all the tools. You know, he had all the skill. He could he could write. Symphonic arrangements. He could write for strings. He he understood he understood music as pure music and not as uh, uh, any kind of fad. He was not swayed by fad or what was on the radio. So when he heard these songs, he treated each song. He he served the song, which is my mantra. It's it's what I learned from him. It's it's the way I think about music today. Even here, you know, here in Nashville, all all my, I run every session the way Arif Martin ran his sessions because that's how I learned because that was I was in the room with him. So you know he it made an indelible imprint on on my 
approach to how to make records. Um, and so to this day, I do exactly what he did. Yeah. You know? When you think of Hall & Oates songs, there's so many iconic background vocals or like riffs that happen in between the chorus with the vocals. Mm -hmm. Did you guys slave over that stuff or was it kind of obvious? It like was not easy. It, it, it was just easy. Super easy. Like kiss on my list, like all that stuff that happens Super in between easy. the chorus. Like you just basically do it. Yeah. The thing, the thing I think a lot of people also don't, don't really sometimes, you know, identify is that a lot of the, one of the characteristics of a lot of our big hits is that the background vocals are singing the hook. Yes. That's what I'm asking. It's very unusual. That's what I'm, yeah. The background vocals are singing the hook and the, the lead vocal, which is mostly Daryl, of course, um, is riffing around it and dancing around it, you know, musically. Uh, and it's, 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 a, it's a trademark. It's a signature trademark. We didn't, we didn't consciously think about it. We just did it. That's what happened. Yeah. Yeah. When, so the first three records were on Atlantic, um, and then you guys then moved to RCA for your fourth record, and that's when you had your first really big hit. No? Well, yeah, that's another story. That, but did RCA bring a certain mojo to it that you weren't getting from Atlantic? Nope. It was just the hit Sarah Smile that took what, off? Yeah. What happened was we did, um, you know, we did Whole Oats, which is a very singer-songwriter folky. And then we did a band on Lynchonette, which really uh, we we Daryl and I both consider that to be our real first yeah. album because it was written in a, a, a condensed period of time. That's my favorite album front to back. Well, I it's, I think it's my favorite album that we've ever made. Yeah. So you know it's interesting that the sophomore album would be the one, but that's okay. Um, and it had She's Gone on it, and, right? You know, and She's Gone was a masterpiece, and it, it still is. And um, you know, and I'll say that, you know, I'm, I'm not being, I'm not bragging when I say it. It, it just is. Um, it's perfect. It's so tight. It, it's, it's, it's. There's, there's no fat on that song. It no, is just, it's, everything is perfect. Everything is right. Yes, yeah. that's correct. Well, um, and we released it, and of course it didn't become a hit. It went to the top 40, and then interestingly enough, Tavares, which was a R&B group at the time, uh, they, they covered it and had a number one R&B record with it. And we said, okay. There's something wrong here. If this these guys can record, they our don't song, even do the modulation at the end, I right? Know, they they left it out. They can have a number one song. Why can't we have a number one song? It's our song. Yeah. And I've honestly felt our version was way better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, but but then we released it again, and it still it went in, into the top maybe twenty, and so now the time has passed, and we because we had no mandate to. Because Abandoned Luncheonette wasn't successful, and She's Gone wasn't really successful commercially. There was no reason for us to do the same thing, you know, so we did an experimental rock album with Todd Rundgren, um, which, you know, in retrospect, I didn't enjoy doing it that much, but in retrospect, it was an important component that led to the future because it, it enabled us to do all... We weren't, we weren't kind of restricted to a certain style because we could do anything at that point. And then we, um, here again, we, we thought, well, it's not working at Atlantic, and we got an offer to go to RCA. RCA was interesting at the time because they didn't really have an act like us. They had John Denver, and they had, you know, some people like that. Um, we, we fit a, 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 a we, we, we kind of fit a, an, a, an empty slot in there. Specifically roster. that you were a duo or just sonically? Just our style. Yeah. Our style, whatever that was, you know. Um, and um, so we, we switched to RCA, and we said there was a guy named Christopher Bond who was in our band in the early 70s. He was from Philadelphia, and he had moved to L.A., and he had become a, he'd become a producer and a session guy, and he knew the studios, and he knew, knew a lot of the session players. And he said, look, you guys, you guys have been recording in New York. You're out of Philly. He goes, you should come to L.A. We got the best studios. We got the best players. And at the time, in the mid-'70s, the best records were coming out of L.A. They really were. Um, and so we thought, okay, well, what do we have to lose? We have nothing to lose. So we went to L.A. And for three albums, we, and we made those albums with him. And the first one had Sarah Smile on it. That became a hit. That opened the door. Um, and then they, Atlantic Records, on the coattails of Sarah Smile, released She's Gone. And that, that finally became a top five record. And then Rich Girl followed that on that following album. So we, we got on a roll basically, and that put us on the map and we began to, we were always touring, but then that put us in the bigger rooms, the bigger, bigger venues. And um, yeah, that really put us on the map. At one point, didn't you 
meet with George Martin of the Beatles. We did. And you guys said, uh, he basically, did he offer to produce you guys? And you said, well, we're not interested. Or it just didn't work. It just didn't flow. It was just a lunch in New York. And it was kind of like, we didn't, it didn't seem like, you know, in in retrospect, it would have been really great to work with him. Do you think so? Sure. He was, he's very similar to Arif. Very, very similar. Yeah. I mean, what he did with the Beatles was exactly what Arif Martin did with us. Uh, uh, George Martin was a classically trained, you know, musician who could hear music outside of, 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 you know, the restrictions of whatever the pop flavor of the month was. He didn't care about that. You know, look what the Beatles did. They had cellos and strings and flutes and, you know, yeah, F trumpets and yeah, all yeah, kinds yeah. of odd, you know, then, of course, sitars and, you know, and on, so on and so forth. Yeah, George Martin was a pure musician. He, 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 uh, he just treated each song for what it was. Yeah, makes sense. So there's a great story in the book where there's this big MTV competition <laughs> where there were two planes. Yes. What what was this? This is the craziest thing well, I've, I've ever heard. Well, that's the excess of the 80s. You couldn't do this today, right? The environmentalists would yeah. be freaking out about private planes going everywhere. Well, I don't know about that. I mean, <laughs> let's take a look at some of the big pop stars today. They 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 have no trouble with their private planes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's not go that far. But, nah, you know, it was a promotion. And MTV was hot. MTV was, was the thing. We were hot. We were, you know, and you're talking about the 80s now. Yeah. We were at the top of the pop world and we could do no wrong. And MTV wanted to, they wanted to do something extravagant. So we had a contest. The winners of the contest, uh, I think, I I can't remember if I started in L.A. and I went to Kansas or vice versa. But Daryl and I were both on each coast, either New York or L.A. And then we both got on a plane with a bunch of fans and we flew toward the middle of Kansas, which was the center of the country. And one of the planes landed first and that was it. And then what? The the fans on that plane won well, a ton of money. And, they won and, something. Or yeah. they, they won something. Yeah, they won something. And were they cool, the fans? Did they know how yeah, to handle? They, were great. they yeah. They knew how to hang and, sure, and, they were great. Yeah. and be cool. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, this is hilarious. I want to You know do what someone that. should do? What, yeah, yeah. Someone should find those fans and interview them. And interview no them. No one right? has ever done that, by the way. Do you think they're around? How would we find Unless them? Unless they're dead. They're, they're dead. No, they, they got Some of them got to be around. How well, would we find them? I don't know. If they were 30, they could be 80 years old by now. So, so, when you're like one of the biggest rock stars in the world, I know that like this might sound crazy. I know like of course you're out running around and causing debauchery and being a rock star, but I just feel like your schedules at the same time would have to be so crazy with touring and it was, recording. It's completely crazy. So everyone did, always thinks that you know that I I love the '80s because that's when we were the most popular and we were on top of the pop world. And if, if far be it from the truth, I actually the '80s went by in such a blur because all we did was work. You know, we wrote, we wrote, we recorded, we toured, we made M- MTV videos, we did promotion, press, went all over the world, and it never ever stopped. Um, I love the '70s because everything was new, every city was new, the people we met were new, the experiences were new, we're, we weren't jaded. We, it was just this constant, uh, you know. Discovery. It was a, it was a, you know, a decade of discovery, which I think is way more interesting than, than a decade of, as you, you know, might excess. Say, debauchery, excess. You yeah. Know, yeah. Uh, although the, you know, I won't, I won't disparage the music we made in the '80s because it was great. It was really great, pop songs, um, but we made good music in the '70s too. So. Yeah. What happened in '79? Not to jump around, but you, you say this in the book in '79. You guys were in basically arenas and playing massive rooms, and then you go back into clubs. Yeah, was that the most depressing thing ever? Well, it could have been, but I think, and I and I will I will give credit to myself and Daryl on this one is that we we made lemons, uh, you know, we made lemonade out of lemons. Um, is that the right phrase? I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What happened was we um, after the three in a row, Sarah smiles, she's gone, rich girl. After that. <clears throat> We made an album called Beauty on a Backstreet, which was terrible. It's the worst album we ever made. My my opinion. I'll speak from. I'm always speaking for myself here, by the way. Yeah. Um, you have to talk to Daryl on the other side. Uh, but anyway, it was what happened was Christopher Bond was in a really bad place, um, drug wise and mentally, and um, we were in a great place. We wrote some really weird songs that just weren't. They just there was something wrong. 
And we were in L.A. for the third album. We didn't want to be there anymore. We had spent three years in L.A. on and off in between tours, recording, writing, and basically living in L.A. Uh, and we wanted to go back to the East Coast. We weren't comfortable there. Uh, we just felt we had kind of run out of steam there. And Chris Bond lost it. And um, so that album is colored to me personally by the, 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 the very dis depressing environment that we were in or place we were in mentally. So when that album kind of bombed, we, um, we didn't know what to do. And so that really took us out of the game because we had no hits. And once you have no hits, of course, you know, things change. So we started playing smaller venues and, and we, we thought to ourselves, well, you know what? We can look at this as a, you know, kind of a career ending moment, or we could look at it as an opportunity. And what we did was we, we had been recording everything we had done up to that point. We had recorded with studio musicians who were great. But our goal was to have a band that we could play live on the road and go directly in the studio and translate the energy of touring into the record. And we just didn't have it. So we basically borrowed Elton John's band in 1978. Uh, Caleb Quay, uh, yeah. Roger, Roger Pope, and Kenny Passarelli who were on the Yellow Brick Road tour with, with Elton. And Elton was off the road, so we basically borrowed his band. And it was really cool because it started to happen. We, we, start, we got the feeling, oh, you know what, our instincts are right. This is the right thing to do. And we went into the studio with those guys uh, after touring with them, and we made Along the Red Ledge, which I think is a really good record. Um, here again, not commercially successful, but a really good record. Uh, and so we, we got on the, we, we realized that, okay, this is, th this is the direction we need to go, even though those guys weren't going to be a permanent solution. And then um, also it was the first album that, um, what's his name, uh, David Foster produced, ever produced. That's right. And w we were the first act that David Foster ever. Produced. And wasn't it, wasn't it, a, it was a mixed experience or I mean he's a genius well, but but talk well, to me about this. David Foster's an amazing musician. Yeah. He he wasn't for us. It wasn't for you guys. But it's, nobody was for you guys except maybe Arif Martin. That's right. But basically you guys were the only ones who could bring the sound out. You guys were for you guys. Were you guys were for you guys. Is that fair to say though? <laughs> yes, you guys for you guys. Yes. Yeah. I'm going to have a t-shirt made. That you guys are for you guys. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but like yeah. why was it was he just it, he brought too much of his. Well, I'll, I'll give you I'll give you an example of how, how you get off on the wrong foot with someone. Um, he played us a song one time uh, on the piano, and the song went. It was like this: Ding, ding, something happened along the way. said, "Whoa, whoa, after the love is gone." And we went, "Nah, it's not for us." <laughs> One of the greatest songs of all time. Was right? that his fault, though? What was the... No, he just said, I think you guys would do a great job. And we were like, eh, maybe, I don't know. That was a big mistake. Yeah, but yeah. Any, but anyway... And then uh, what, did you hear Earth, Wind, Fire playing uh, that? Yeah, and then he produced Earth, Wind, and Fire, yeah, yeah. and that song was a mega Grammy. And then you go, oh my God, that could have no, been ours. No, not really. Never looked back. You never looked back. Really, nah. You can't. Why? So, like, I'm a guitar player, and I grew up idolizing G. Smith. G is a great guitar player. Why is he a great guitar player? At like, did you know? Was he always great? I mean, of course he's great. But well, he was after that the, the that experience with that band with Roger Roger and Kenny and and Caleb. That's when we started to assemble the, the what became the '80s band. Yeah, and that started in '79, into '80, and one of the first people we got was was G E Smith. Where'd you find him? I don't know where we found him. I really don't know where we found him. We found he was in New York. And he auditioned, and he was very charismatic. He was bigger than life personality. Um, and the thing about GE is that he's a student of the guitar. He's a real student of the guitar. He, um, you know, he's one of these guys. You know, he came up through the bar band thing. He can play any. You, you name a rock song, a classic rock song, he can play it. You know, it doesn't matter. And um, and he has a he has a, a lot of facility with. Um, being able to, uh, you know, to, to really dip into the his encyclopedic knowledge of guitar stuff. That's the kind of guy he is. Um, and um, so anyway, he so he was a big addition because he, he really added a lot of fire and and um, charisma to to our live show. 
and then he brought along uh, Mickey Curry, who he had played with in bar bands. And Mickey was uh, Mickey Curry had never played in a professional band before, so we were his first big, you know, step. And then eventually we got T-Bone, uh, Tom, Tom Wilk. Came from I love the, the story too, which oh, you probably yeah. told a million times. But yeah. you were auditioning someone else. We, we, it had come down to two guys. It come down to this really good-looking guy from Long Island with long blonde hair. Um, Somebody who, should interview that guy. Where's that guy? Yeah, where is he today? Right. <laughs> and um, and then uh, and T Bone. They were the two. They were both great. You know, really good bass players. Um, but the one guy looked really good. He had a real vibe. And T Bone was very kind of flannel shirts and you know knit cap and. Uh, you know, kind of, kind of quiet, but really great player. Um, and then the, then the guy, the, the good-looking guy, made a very fatal mistake. He he told Daryl that he thought it'd be a good idea when he got in a band that he should sing "Kiss on My what List." What an idiot! Who does this guy? <laughs> what, who does he think he is? What is yeah, he that, doing? That, let's put it this way: that was a bad career move. And Daryl literally said in front of him, he, he, he said, literally said, he "Let's said, go get the other guy." He said, "John, let's get the bald guy. <laughs> let's get the bald guy." Because T Bone was bald. Yeah. yeah. And uh, he said, "He said, let's what get the bald moron. guy." What a moron! What know, is he doing? I have no idea. But this is crazy. But that band is that—that <laughs> that was the best was, thing that. that Daryl and I ever did was hire Tebow. Yeah, he became um, he became the 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 real the rock, you know. Um, and he and I will say this, and I will say this in a town full of amazingly talented musicians. He was the best musician I ever ever played with. Wasn't there a session you did in Nashville with him? Yes. And weren't like Michael Rhodes and all these yes. bass players? They wanted to see him. Like yes. they were all. He he is with a, he was without a doubt you know he's passed away God rest his soul but he um, was the best musician I've ever played with just as a pure musician yeah uh, I had never heard him play the wrong a wrong note ever on any instrument and he played guitar unbelievable guitar player unbelievable keyboard player unbelievable bass player and just musical sensibility beyond you know anybody else and did him and GE really click in the band and the band was, the band was, was incredible was an incredible band yeah. It was, you know, a great assembly. And then we, of course, we always had Charlie, yeah. our sax player, from from 75. He joined us in 74 or 75. So, uh, you know. But um, it's just one of those things, you know. Uh, it, it just was the chemistry was there, the skill, the talent. It was all all in one place. And But I did. I brought T-Bone. My first album that I recorded in um, in Nashville in 2007, um, I... I got with it with one of the a great engineer named Bill, Bill Vorndick who just just passed away just recently, and um, he asked me who 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 uh, was going to play, and I said, well, you know, I'm going to count on you to get me some really great guys because I didn't know the the really good players in town, and he assembled some really good guys. He said, who's going to be on bass? And I said, well, I'm going to bring T Bone. He goes, oh, that's not a good idea. I said, that's well, so Nashville, isn't oh, it's it? So very Nashville. That's so Nashville. Well, I, I, he said, well, you know, these guys are the top guys. They they don't like to play with guys they don't know, and you know, he might not fit in. Blah blah blah. I said, don't worry, it'll be fine. And then we started recording the sessions, and then all these all these bass players started showing up. Steve Mackey, who ended up being one of my best friends in, in my band now, um, and Michael Rhodes, and all these bass players start showing up. And the engineer Bill kept saying, "Why are these why are these bass players like showing up? They're here to see T Bone." And so obviously, you know, it was it was pretty so... clear from the very beginning that he was you know he was going to rock this thing. Yeah. Do you experience yeah. like that? To me, is the most Nashville thing I've ever heard. Like, oh, uh, yeah, like, it, like, what is that? Why is that a thing? Well, it was just that he didn't know, you know. Yeah. I, I, in his defense, Bill Bill Vorndick's a great engineer. He became a professor at Belmont, you know, and engineered some of the great greatest country albums, you know, of all time. Um, but you know, it should, but the musicians were all open minded. It's just that Bill just didn't know who he was. But he found out quite quickly yeah. who he was, right? When okay, so in the '80s, you guys inducted the Temptations into the Rock and Roll Hall right. of Fame, and there's this awesome video online where you guys start like spontaneously what harmonizing oh I and don't then remember. and then they come in and they start singing with you guys you don't remember this no you have to watch this video it's unbelievable oh good I'd i was gonna, i was gonna ask if this was planned or not no it was definitely not planned. it was definitely not planned no. you have to watch this video because you and daryl start you mean at the podium we at were, the podium we were singing a temptation song i'm assuming you start you you're doing this speech yeah and it comes to the end of the speech and you go why don't we just harmonize something? You start and you and Daryl start singing, right? And the Temptations come out of their seats in the in the yeah. celebration. They come onto stage and they start singing with you. 
Oh, well, that's so that's awesome. <laughs> you got to watch this video. I have to. I have to I watch it because I, I don't remember that. This to me would be like the most mind blowing thing. Okay, we're moving. We can't even talk about it. You don't. Okay. Even, you don't even know about I'll it. I watch it though. Okay, my other Hall of Fame question. Yeah. When you guys got inducted into the Hall of Fame, what was happening in the beginning of the set? Your monitors went out. That that experience, I have to say, I'm really glad we're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I'm really glad because as you know, as just as a career move, it's it's really powerful and it makes you know carries a lot of weight. But to be honest with you, the the evening was just drudgery. We were there from five o'clock in the, in, the, in five o'clock p.m. till like midnight. We didn't go on till almost the end. Um, we were exhausted. We were tired. We had, the only thing we had on our table was candy and wine. Um, <laughs> You know, we were. I, I, I was definitely having a uh, you know low blood sugar moment, and uh, it was just it was just it was just tiring. And then we got up there, and the shit wasn't working. The you know the monitors went out. There was a crackles and stuff. And I mean, we managed to pull it off, but uh, it was it was not exactly what I'd call fun. And what you see on the edited version of the television show is a completely. <laughs> completely different experience than what was actually happening. How can this be? It just seems insane. Well, it, the night drug on and on and on and on and on. There was a lot of performers who um, talked a, a little bit too long. Let's put it that way. I'm not going to name names. but. And you got up there and I and Daryl goes, let's just play. Yeah. He we, goes. Were, <laughs> we were tired. We were, like, we were like, this is stupid. Let's just get this over with. Let's just play. Yeah. I'm. Well, it was a good performance. Once yeah. the monitors got fixed, it yeah, came yeah, together. Well, you know, yeah. Okay, so now you're doing this thing where you're putting out music, like you're putting out a song a month, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And you just put out an amazing cover. Yeah. Um, this month, right? What a wonderful world. What a wonderful world. But I did a cover right before that too. Yeah. Why can't we live together? Why Timmy, can't Timmy we live? Thomas. Yeah. Yeah. So what is this? Because well, it's it's just what happened. Um, I wrote a couple songs during the pandemic. Um, I wanted to figure out a way of releasing them. I thought to myself, and I know for experience, through experience that no one is buying any physical product. You know, sure, there's niche uh, audiophiles who love vinyl, but it doesn't really move the needle when it comes to actual sales. Uh, it's a streaming world, let's face it, kids, and let's jump in with both feet. You know, that's how I saw it. Um, so I found myself um, a digital distributor in the orchard and uh, a digital marketing company in Black Box and uh, began to explore the, how to do this and learn. It was really a learning experience for me. Um, so I've surrounded myself with some really great people who really know what they're doing. And I said, let's go down this road and see what happens. So that was the concept. And I released two of my original songs first. And then, um, I, then with what was going on with the Ukraine and what I was seeing and all, with all the past presidential elections and the riots and all that stuff was happening, I just revisited the Timmy Thomas song and that he wrote in 1971, which was about Vietnam, essentially. And uh, I said, this is a song that uh, time has come once again. And, and so I wanted to make it my own. I did my own version of it, um, released that. And then uh, I, I was playing a lot of shows and I wanted to, during the pandemic, I wanted to, uh, once I started performing again, I wanted to sing the most positive song I could sing as a kind of an antidote to the th two and a half years that we all spent hiding in our, yeah, right, in right. our rooms, right? And I, I, you know, I just said, well, What a Wonderful World is maybe one of the most positive songs ever written. And I said, but you know what? It's interesting that it was always done as a kind of a slow ballad. And I thought, this song deserves to be an up-tempo and I want so here again. I wanted to record it like a '70s R&B song. That sounds to me like something I w would have done with Arif Martin in Atlantic Studios. Yeah. Even the playing style was like that. Um, in fact, I told the guys. I said I want to play this like a '70s R&B song. And of course, you know, and Steve Mackey's bass part on that song is amazing. Um, so who else uh, played on it? That was Steve Mackey. It was Guthrie Trap on lead guitar. I played rid the rhythm guitar part. Um, it was um, let's see. Uh, Greg Morrow was on drums. Uh, I use Greg Morrow almost all the time. Uh, I love his playing. Um, and uh, let's see. I can't remember who played keyboards on that. But anyway. Guthrie's told me the story that I think you first met him at, what, a bluegrass festival in Telluride? Yeah. And you came off the stage, and you had a guitar, and you just said, hey, here, here take this. 
and you just gave him your guitar. Yeah, I didn't want to carry it on the plane. That is the most rock and roll thing ever. You're just giving, like, what are you doing, John? You're just giving away guitars like well, crazy? I, I, like I had a few drinks, I will say that. But no, what happened was he was on one side of stage. He was playing with Jerry Douglas. I was playing, I, I was jamming with Sam Bush. And um, it was the mighty jam at the end of the Telluride night. You yeah, know, the yeah, yeah. Traditional thing where all the, everybody gets up and jams. And he just blew me, well, all weekend he blew me away because I watched him play with Jerry. And, and then he and I hung out together. Um, we went and watched Solomon Burke during the gospel Sunday morning. You know, not to rat him out, he didn't know who you were. He didn't not know. Not at first. No, not he at first. He, he, had, he couldn't even tell you a Hall & Oates song. He no. had no idea who you no, were. he didn't. He was just like. But we went to the condo. We placed in Doc Watson and stuff like that. And he didn't realize I could do that. But of course, he had no preconceived notion I could do anything. Yeah, right, So right. it didn't matter. <laughs> um, but, you know, so I, I realized that we had the same, a lot of the same folky kind of rootsy influences, even though he's a lot younger than me. Yeah. And it, well, he's unbelievable, right? Oh, he's amazing. Yeah, he's amazing. I love playing with him. Yeah, but and we we play together now all the time. Yeah, yeah, right, right. And then, but now you're also going on. You're doing like uh, acoustic shows, and you've got like a percussionist. Yeah, I, I play sometimes with just myself, sometimes with me and a percussionist, sometimes with me and Guthrie, and sometimes me and Guthrie and a percussionist. Yeah, I want to keep it really streamlined and simple. I I I don't want to get into this thing with a band and amps and drum kits and all that stuff. So, um, so I'm just been doing uh, acoustic shows, and it's really it's it's easy, fun, and um, I like telling stories and things like that. The Arkansas record that you made, I guess now a couple years ago. At this it point, came out in eighteen. Made it in, in 17, eighteen. Yeah. But I've listened to that record so many times. The covers Thanks. on that are, are, are incredible. That, that was a ma- that yeah. was a magical record. That you know, I and I was originally going to make a John, uh, Mississippi John Hurt tribute album. That's what I wanted to do because I know his almost basically yeah. his entire repertoire. So I cut a couple tracks with just me and a guitar, you know, in the most traditional way possible. And it was like, eh, you know, why bother, you know. Why? Who, who needs? Who needs, uh, who needs me doing this again? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, but what happened was then. I, the, it was one night, and I, I remember I was I was laying in bed watching TV or whatever, and I thought to myself, I've never heard these songs with a band. I said, and I love these songs, so let's try it. So I assembled this really eclectic band. So it was Guthrie on guitar, it was Josh Day on drums. Um, and actually, it was Josh Day on cajon and percussion because I didn't want a real drum kit. I wanted to make it as unusual and sonically unique as possible. Um, Russ Paul, who's a great steel player, mind-boggling steel player, um, and uh, Nat Smith, cellist who plays played with uh, uh, Casey Musgrave among other people. Um, and uh, do we have and and Steve Mackey on bass. And that was the band. So I assembled this band, you know, a cello, a pedal steel. Oh, and Sam Bush on mandolin. Yeah. So it was like this really weird band that you wouldn't normally assemble to do a Delta Blues record. Okay? Yeah, right, right. But I didn't want to do that. I wanted to, I, I didn't know what it was going to sound like. Um, and we did a miss. The first thing we did was, uh, was um, Sp- uh, S- Stackley was the first thing we did. So I ended up playing the just like Mississippi John Hurt, classic Mississippi John Hurt finger pickings thing. And I played it. I said, okay, guys, I'm going to do this. You do that. You do something else. I don't know what you're going to do, but just do it. And they started playing. Everyone just played naturally. And the beauty of the great players here in Nashville is that they really listen. They can really listen. They can listen on a critical level, and that's that's the mark of a great musician, someone who can really listen. And so we we played it. We played it down a couple times, and it sounded really good. And I went in for a, a listen. We went into the uh, control room to listen back, and my engineer David Kalmuski, who has since become my co-producer on a lot of tracks, he said, "John, I don't know what this is." He says, "But it's amazing, and just keep doing it." So I said, well, if we can do it on this song, we can do it on anything. Yeah, right, right. And that's what happened. And so we cut like four or five songs the first week. And then we, I think we took a break for the holidays. And we came back in January, cut four or five more, and that was the album. And it was, it, it was, it really just happened. There was no, you know, I wish I could have said, well, I had this master, you know, vision, vision. for the, the whole, that was sonically, all laid it's out. Going to oh sound. my God. I just picked the best players I could. And, and as I learned from Arif Martin, I let them do their thing. Yeah. But I just guided, I guided the process. And it's really, that's the secret to, to guide the process, but not step on it. Right. Yeah. Why did you, after Sarah Smile became a huge hit, 
that was the moment that you said, I got to get some music education or I need to go to music school. No, it was actually during War Babies. During War Babies, you said that. I would think if I was you, I'd be like, I'm, I know everything. Like, I'm having hits. I'm top of the world. I didn't know everything. But what, what did you feel you didn't know? Well, during the War Babies album, we had some players in the group who were kind of prog rock guys, jazzy prog rock guys, heavy metal, jazz, rock. And some of the stuff was very complex. There was multiple time signatures. There was, um, it was just a lot of stuff that I wasn't, I could do it. I could hang because I have um, a certain amount of, I have good ears and I had enough skill to hang, but I wasn't there and I, I wasn't able to really, and I felt uncomfortable about that. And I thought, well, I, I can't, I can't go forward without really making sure I know what the hell I'm doing. So I kind of took a, a crash course, a very uh, intensive crash course with a really unique woman named Helen Hobbs Jordan. She was in her 70s then. She seemed like she was 105, but <laughs> of course I was in my 20s. Um, everybody who's old seems like they're 105 when you're in your 20s. But um, she, played, she played stride piano on the, continental, on the transcontinental railroad. Think about that. Oh my God. She played in the railroad cars going across the country. For just like entertainment. In the, or, in the 1920s. Yeah, yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Whatever. Yeah. And she, uh, she developed the, the, the curriculum at Juilliard, and she developed a curriculum, a basic curriculum at Berkeley. Well, it was what Berkeley used as a stepping, right. jumping off point for the curriculum. She had this very unique way of, uh, you know, you're a musician. Yeah. She had a very unique way of teaching. So to, to, to just make it not too complicated... Everything you did, you had to write, and you had to write it in three different ways. You had to write it in numbers, letters, four ways. Numbers, letters, phonetically, and um, score. Right. And phonetically no, would no, be like notation. solfege. Notation. Yeah. yeah. You had to be able to sing it. And, well, we haven't gotten there for yet. So... <laughs> So you had to write it in one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Scale eight. degrees, yeah. basically. One, yeah. You know, one through, you know, like one, three, five. You right, know? right, right. Okay. Then you had to write it in do, do, mi, so. Right. Then you had to write the notes. Like A, G, Yeah, you B, had to or, actually write yeah, the, yeah, yeah. the triad, whatever you're going to write. And then you, had, then you had to be able to sing that. You had to be able to play it on a piano. And you had to be able to write it. So everything you did, you had to do in, alpha, you know, alphabetically, phonetically, like solfeggio, and write it and perform it. And did you know the notes on the staff, or was this the first time you were learning it? I knew the notes on the staff from when I took early, early guitar lessons, but I was so rudimentary that I was basically starting from scratch. Um, and uh, that's what you had to do. And then, in addition to that, you had to take three lessons with a solfeggio teacher, a writing teacher, a playing teacher, piano playing teacher, and then at the end of the week, you had to perform all that for her. Then you also had to audit a class ahead of you so that you had a general what idea. What was this program? Were you just making oh, this up, or this no, was like a program? This was that, her. It was, the, she, she, when I first I, I, I inquired around New York City, like, who's, like, who's the, the shit? You know, who's, like, the person to yeah. go to? And they said, well, the only real professional you know, music theory teacher is Helen Hobbs Jordan. So I just made an arrangement to meet her. I, she was on uh, 57th Street, right between um, between 5th and 6th. And um, I went up to her apartment. And first thing she told me is how she uh, kicked Paul Simon out because he didn't do the work. Um, and then she said, um, she said, okay, well, she goes, if you want to, if you want to get B's, you can just go to college. But if you're going to get A's, you're going to, you can try me. Because if you don't get A's, you're not going to be here. She goes, there's, there was no, there was, she didn't pull any punches. And um, that was it. And I said, okay, well, I'm going to give it a try. And I, I spent six months with her, and I just did that. That's all I did. There you go. And is, do you feel like that was the last time you had a big musical growth in terms of learning? Like, for me, like, when I was at Berkeley, that was the last time I feel yeah, like I really Yeah, I mean, that, I was, really that, was, that really gave me a foundation. It gave me a, a music theory foundation that I didn't have, and I needed it. 
And now I have it. So now I can communicate on, on any kind of level with any musician, basically. So prior to that, would you be saying like, hey, this is a one, two, yeah, five, no, or whatever? No, I wouldn't or say anything. I would you would just say, just say oh, like, you would have no idea of what you were. You were like, yeah. this sounds good. I'd play a bunch of cowboy chords, you know, at the bottom of the neck and just yeah. be happy with that. And every once in a while, figure out something a little more sophisticated. No, another good part of the my my music education had to come, came from playing with Daryl because he was a piano player. So I had to translate his... You know he has he has he's a really good piano player and he play you know he used a lot of um, you know a lot of unusual you know voicings and he would also you know do a lot of um, you know pedaled bass notes and moving chords under 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 a, a bass note things like that so I had to translate that to guitar so I had to literally finger my way through these piano chords so a lot of times people will always say well you play guitar like a piano player and I say well yeah there's a reason for it you know so yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. You guys ever going to go back out again or? or? Mm, I don't know. It's hard to say. Hard to say. We're on a, we're on a permanent hiatus for a yeah. while. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, all right. You guys had some of the first shows back, though, after the um, pandemic. Yeah, we managed to grab a, get a couple. In the world, there were a couple we had to do contractually. Yeah. Yeah, we managed to squeeze enough in to get, get uh, you know, kind of satisfy our commitment. Let's put it that way. When did he start playing guitar on stage? Because wasn't he mostly just singing he, vocals and then he played piano? He started playing a four-string guitar. Like um, a tenor? It or was like, like a tenor guitar, but it was in a full size. And he actually had a couple made, some custom ones made. And then from there, he transitioned into playing guitar. And were you like, hey, man, I'm the guitar player? Or you didn't uh, care? Whatever. Yeah, he, he likes the way he looks playing guitar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. John... I can't thank you enough for. Uh, well, that was quite a interview. I didn't know that's where we were going, but I. Coming on. I'm open minded. Where Where did we go? What have we left out? Have we left anything out? Is there anything? Oh, my whole life. Yeah, I mean, God the man. whole everything. Aspen <laughs> living next to Hunter S. Thompson. Yeah, I mean, come on. Why was I'm it? I'm a dad. Come on, you're, man. <laughs> you're a dad. I know. What was your son do? Is he, is he, I can't is, tell you. He's a musician also, or no. just pr private life? Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he works in a unusual field. Yeah. Every time I ask him what he's doing, he says, I'm keeping you safe, Dad. So no, it's we'll amazing. just leave it at that. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Why was it so important? You make a point of this, that you guys are not hauling oats. We, we, made it, we made that point very early on. No one paid attention very to us. Very early on. But we did. Why yeah. was that because important we, to you? Because we both realized we were two individuals, and we both kind of knew in the back of our minds that one day we were always going to be individuals and not be this. And, you know, we, we, we tongue-in-cheek named uh, our touring company Two-Headed Monster. You know, because it's really that that's what we, we always knew that, you know, we were two individuals who didn't necessarily need each other, but it worked when we were together. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, a friend of mine just recently told me, you know, he, he said, uh, he said, John, you came into the world as John Oates, the musician. He goes, you're going to go out as John Oates, the musician. He goes, you don't have to be part of anything. And that's how I kind of feel. Anyway, yeah. So. Are you offended by the term Yacht Rock? I'm not offended by it, but I don't like it, and you, I, I don't even know what it means. Does it mean that you 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 wear like a funny hat that looks like, uh, um, you know, what's uh, the Captain and Tennille? Is that yeah? Is that, is that what it, is that where it came from? <laughs> because there's, a, I think that like you'll see yacht rock cover bands who wear the hats and who dress up like they're sailors, and then they play music, and like 25 percent of their catalog will be Hall and Oates songs. Like it's almost well, fallen into in it, it's a thing. I, I don't care for the term because I don't know what it means, and I have never. You never. Been, you I've were on a yacht when you were writing these I've songs. Never, I've never been on a yacht. I've <laughs> never owned. Well, I have been on a yacht, but I can't tell you what I did when I was on it. Um, <laughs> what does that mean? What what, well, what did you do on the yacht? Um, all I'll say is I was on a yacht in the harbor of Monaco during the Grand Prix in the seventies, and I'll let your imagination run wild. What happened on this yacht? I'll just let your imagination. Oh my run wild. god. Okay, but but no. yacht rock is not it's not a good term. <laughs> or, or what is it? You know what? It's it's okay, I was just at Sirius XM recently. The Yacht Rock channel is their most popular channel of all their channels. Yes. Okay? Cuz you guys are on it. Well, good. You know what? If if that gets the music around, that's great. I don't care what people call it. Uh it doesn't matter. But all I know is that you know, um I I did play with the original Yacht Rock band. And you know what happened? It was really, an, it really interesting, and I'll tell you. I was on the jam cruise, and they were, I was part of the jam cruise, and they were part of the jam cruise. So they asked me if I'd come up and sit in with them on a song. I said, sure. And I said, let's do She's Gone. Great. So I get on stage. The weirdest thing happened. 
because Daryl and I have been playing that song for so many years, it has changed and evolved. From what is on the recording. And it's become a, it's not a completely different song. The essential elements are still there, but it's a totally different approach. And they played it exactly like, like the, the record. I'm telling you, and I was impressed because note for note, it was exactly like the record. I had no idea what they were doing. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, what just happened? And now I'm up here and they're like, and I'm going, okay, all right, yeah, I got it. Oh. And I mean, they were, to they were so slavish to the original, you know, in, in a good way. Um, but <laughs> it was, it was, it was eye-opening. I was like, oh, so that's what the song sounded like. What's that rotary guitar sound you use on that song? I'm using a wah-wah pedal. That's a wah-wah pedal. I'm just yeah. wah, wah 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 That's what the, I almost thought it would have been something like no, programmed, no, but no, no it's that's, a real wah-wah. That's a wah-wah Programmed. Pedal. I don't know. What you're, you're, this isn't, you know, kiss on my list or something. <laughs> the only programming that was going on in those days was on TV. It was, was on TV. It was called a television program. Yeah. No, no. I, it was a wah-wah pedal through a little Fender amp, you know, with my with a little Stratocaster. You know, wah, wah, wah. That yeah. was it. Yeah. What's that guitar in, that you played in the uh, Live in Dublin show? You were you were playing your Strat. And oh, then you had another is it guitar. a blue one? I think it was blue. Almost looked yeah. like a Les Paul kind of. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a it's a TV Jones. It's a very. Oh. It's a, he makes pickups. He makes pickups for um, for Gretsch and a lot of other people. TV Jones pickups are really popular. They're great. Um, but he made a guitar. He only I don't even know if he still makes them. Yeah. It's called a Model Ten. He made two of them. Um, one was a little bit larger than the other, and I just stumbled upon it and I liked it. I have two of them. Very cool. Yeah. John, can't thank you enough for coming down. Okay, exactly. Coming down from uh, all the way, uh, you probably live close to here. All the way from the West End. All the huh? way from the West Side of Nashville. Yes, that's, that's the best right. thing about Nashville. You're yeah. always so close. Ten minutes away. Ten minutes away. Thanks for coming on. All right. And we'll see you next time. Okay, thanks. Whew. <laughs> we did. Did we get it, John? It was good, man. It was good.